Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode 11, The Battle of Mirth. When you think of the great armies of the ancient world, at least if you're me, you think of the Roman army, the Mongols, Hannibal with his elephants crossing the Alps, and... Yeah, well, that's, that's about it. Those are all the armies that make the standard lists. No mention of any Indian army there, you'll notice. In fact, India, I think, is, is not thought of as somewhere with powerful armies or cutting-edge military technology. And that's especially true of the period of Indian history that Harsha lived in. Conventional wisdom tells us that there were no big advances in military technology during that period at all. In fact, conventional wisdom says that nothing much had changed in Indian armies since the end of the Mauryan period half a millennium before. More, in fact. It would be surprising if that conventional wisdom were correct. Because during Harsh's period, whenever an Indian army faced an army from outside of India, it knocked it out of the park. Indian military forces from the Gupta period onwards, had an almost unbroken record of beating outsiders. They won again and again. And the clearest example of this is with the Huns. The Huns, although they adopted much of Indian culture, seem to have not adopted much of Indian warfare. And that seems to have been a mistake. Because they were beaten first by the Gupta emperors, then by a smaller kings who followed the Guptas, then by Harsh's own father, then by Harsh's brother. Now you can read in more disreputable sources that the Guptas and the Indian armies were beaten by the Huns, but that idea seems to be based on little more than the assumption that ancient Indians must have been worse than the Huns. This dominance of the Indian armies over the outsiders, that's kind of a new thing. In the centuries before the Guptas, invaders had come from Central Asia, and they'd had a good beat-up of many Indian armies. They hadn't always won, but they'd won as often as not. So, how did the Indian armies manage to adjust, manage to change? What were the new bits of technology? What were the parts of Harsh's army that made it into this powerful force? This episode, we're going to find out, because we're going to get to know an ancient Indian army pretty well. Harsh's army, in fact. We're going to join Emperor Harsha on campaign, starting the very morning of the battle. In those times, it was the king's duty to personally go out and check his soldiers the morning of the battle. So we're going to step out with Harsha. We're going to be by his side as he leads his men onto the battlefield, lines them up, and we'll listen as he gives the orders, responding to enemy movements, looking for the right time and the right place to strike. Before we get there, a quick pause for a caveat though. We've got no detailed account of Harsha on the morning of the battle. Some of the things that we're going to talk about are from sources around Harsha's time, but not specifically about Harsha. Others will be from sources specifically about Harsha, but not specifically about the morning before the battle. We're only going to use Harsha's name for the second sort of source, otherwise we'll just talk about the king in general. Absolutely none of this, though, is from my imagination. At least, I'm going to try and hopefully succeed in only taking things from sources. What this podcast episode will be adding is the application of those ideas from those variety of different sources to one person in one place. That's the element of imagination or fiction we're including. 
But frankly, I think that gets us closer to the reality than simply going through dusty rule books. That's the beauty, I suppose, of doing a history podcast rather than writing an academic book. You can try to bring the ancient ideas back to life, to animate them. Or at least, no one stopped me trying to do that yet. So, caveats over, strap on your Gupta-era battle shoes, shine your metal toe caps, and let's get the battle day underway. the night before battle. In the centre of the camp, the king is sleeping in his tent, when across the darkness comes a noise. The rattling of bells, the neighing of horses. It's coming from the enemy town. The enemy horsemen are already up and they're preparing for the fight ahead. The king stirs in his sleep. He reaches for his sword. A little later, the king rises to the usual cry. Victory! Victory! The singers yell out the morning's greeting to their king. Harsha goes to worship his god, Shiva. And then he dresses, he puts on especially fine clothes. It is, after all, a battle day, and you want to be looking your most beautiful. And then he goes to his audience chamber. And there, the leading figures of the kingdom come in to wish him well. First his prime minister, followed by his most important allies, and then the king's own personal friends. As the sun threatens to peek out over the horizon, the king goes to his chariot and he steps aboard. Noble-born soldiers surround him on either side, and the whole party moves off into the camp. There's lots for the king to do, even before the army marches out to battle. He's got to ensure that all of the practical preparations are done correctly, and there are some things that he's going to be looking out for especially, but he's mostly there to talk to the troops, partly to encourage them, but also to listen to them. At this time it said that a king must be open to all. Anyone should be able to approach him. So the king's got to be going around the camp with a large smile and a confident grip. Let's catch a ride with the king's chariot and go out to see the army. The classic Indian army has always had four limbs. Chariots, horsemen, elephant and infantry. The four military pieces, in fact, on your chest set. Although now we often use a castle instead of an elephant and a bishop instead of a chariot. Actually, talking of chariots, there aren't really many chariots for Harsha to see. One of the things that Indian armies had learnt over the past centuries were charity chariots are a bit rubbish. It wasn't always so. Back in the old, old days, Indian chariots had been amongst the best in the world at the angled spokes of the wheels, allowing them to turn sharper, to ride harder. But all across the world, for centuries now, chariots had been on their way out. And in India specifically, chariots had been pretty much useless for centuries. Even way back in the day when Alexander the Great had poked into India, the chariots had failed utterly, and had failed ever since. The main trouble with chariots seems to have been that they were only really useful on level, dry land that didn't have rocks. And even there, they could easily be replaced by new horse technology. More on that later. In Harsha's time, chariot tactics still appeared in the war manuals, but nowadays there were suggestions of how to replace chariots if you didn't have any. 
and the effort to discuss chariots just seems more dusty, more like dull repetitions of advice that's now out of date. A king during harshest time would likely not have had any war chariots at all. There still would have been a few chariots knocking around. The king was in one, of course, and that's pretty much what they were used for nowadays. According to a Chinese pilgrim who went through India at this point, kings often went around in chariots. They had a couple of people up on the chariot with them, like we're with the king now, and they had a bunch of people marching alongside. Pretty clearly, these chariots aren't meant for war. After all, they're not going fast, they're surrounded by infantry, guards on foot. So these chariots seem to be more a statement of old-time grandeur than a practical war machine. It was more like someone turning up today in a a biplane rather than an F-22 fighter jet. They're there to impress. So let's follow Harsher as he heads out to inspect not the chariots, but first the stables, the horsemen. Here, the changes are the exact opposite of what happened to the chariot. In centuries gone by, Indian kings would have had relatively few cavalry. For example, the great Satavahanas, who ruled much of the Deccan to the south, they only had 2,000 horses. That's incredibly few to cover a country that's several times the size of Britain. One of the reasons that ancient Indian kings had few horses was that there were so few horses to have. I mean, there are some parts of India where you can get wild horses. Up in northeast India, I think you'll find them. But most of those horses are are too small and and too thin to make good war horses. But lots had changed since those days. Indian kings had learnt from outsiders, those invaders who swept in from Central Asia. Lots of those invaders came on horseback, and most of them were horse archers. They had quivers tied to their thighs and small, powerful compound bows in their hands. And these Central Asians also had new techniques of horse fighting. The Parthian shot, it was called in the West. This was a tricky move where you charge your horse right up to the enemy, you turn it round, and as you're turning it round, you fire an arrow. The horseman then is always a moving target. They make short work of enemy after enemy. Now, ancient Indian kings had picked up an awful lot from those invaders from Central Asia. For one thing, they'd picked up the horses. Those Central Asian horses were wonderful things built for war. Those Central Asian horses were wonderful things. If we were honest, they are bred for war much more than any of the ancient Indian horses were. They had angular heads, long, slender bodies built for speed and endurance. They were hardy enough to survive on grass and nothing else. You couldn't really breed those horses in India very well. The problem, weirdly, was that too much of India was fertile. India, especially northern India, the the Gangetic Plain, had this rich soil that was best suited to great fields of corn and rice. And a huge population had grown up in India dependent on that corn and that rice. So there just wasn't enough grassland for the horses to really thrive. At least not in Harsha's homeland and the Gangetic Plain. So Harsha had sourced horses from elsewhere. He'd got some horses from Persia. They were pretty good. But the best of his horses came from Cambodia. Cambodia had been one of those ancient houses of India back in the day, one of those fierce, semi-democratic republics. They were supposed to have been invincible in battle. And Cambodia, 
was situated on the very edge of ancient India, or at least these Cambodians were, we're talking about now. In fact, just outside the very edge of ancient India too, where the edge of Pakistan is and beyond into the Swat Valley. The Cambodians were synonymous with horsemen, almost literally. Often people didn't call them Cambodians, but simply called them the horsemen. And their land was often simply called the land of horses. The king would have needed plenty of horses for his army. He would have been tapping the Cambodians for as many horses as he could possibly get. In fact, you have more horses than horsemen. It's been calculated that the nomadic riders would need 10 or 15 horses each, so around a dozen horses per soldier. It's no reason to think that Harsha needed that many horses, but the idea that each horseman only needs one horse, that seems to be wrong. Harsha didn't just get the best horses, he got the best horse technology. For a long time, Indian kings had been picking up technology from Central Asia. For example, the S-shaped cheek bar, the bit, the bridle, the saddles, the reins, all of that came from Central Asia and be taken into India centuries ago. And also, not just things on the horse, but things on the horseman, the horseman's clothing, tunics, waistbands, trousers, things that gave free movement for the horseman to strike on either side of the horse or to turn and shoot his bow and arrow. And also, the ability to ride hard, everything strapped down, without any fear that your clothing would rub off and fly away in the wind, leaving you streaking across the battlefield naked. Indian kings picked up other things from Central Asia too. They may have started to use the bows, in particular, the compound bow. Compound bows were made with a mix of materials, a wooden core, a belly of horn, and bone to stiffen the tips and the grip. Compound bows were small enough to shoot easily from horseback, but they packed a lot of punch. An arrow from a compound bow could stick into a man a thousand yards away. The compound bow is a really tricky technology. We're not entirely sure when Indian kings picked it up. These things can take a year to make, and they're complicated. One year per bow. But it's not just that the Indian kings had picked up ideas and material from outside. That wouldn't be enough to explain how they managed to dominate the Huns. No, the Indian kings had developed these ideas, made them into something more ferocious. And they used one of the most ferocious inventions in cavalry technology of all time. The stirrup. Somewhere to place your leg as you raced across the battlefield. A firm place to stand as you lifted yourself to fire your arrows or to strike with your lance. From the Gupta period onwards, horses were equipped with a, a soft, fine cloth saddle, tied on both sides with girdles and with footrests. And that, according to some historians, is how the Indian kings managed to keep on beating the Huns. The Huns, you see, were these incredibly skilled horsemen. Not as many of them are on horseback as sometimes thought, in my estimation, but still, the ones who were on horseback could pull off that tricky manoeuvre, the Parthian shot, without needing stirrups. And that could only be done with years and years of training, with starting riding when you were a child and continuing until you were an adult. But the Indian kings, the Gupta emperors, Harsha's father and brother, their armies didn't need that training because they had the Indian stirrups. And stirrups gave all sorts of other advantages too. For example, the quivers could be bigger. 
the horsemen of the Indian kings could reach back and rummage around for arrows in huge bearskin packs tied to their backs, packed with arrows. The nomadic invaders needed these smaller quivers tied on their thighs. And with the stirrups, the arrows could be launched harder and more accurately. Dig your heels into the stirrups, get some leverage, some stability, and let the arrow fly. No wonder there was no need for chariots nowadays. Horse archers were just much faster and better, and they had that same stable base to fire from. Stirrups did even more than that, though. More than just make horsemen better archers. Stirrups made horsemen into something more. Heavy cavalry. Harsh's army probably had a fair amount of light cavalry equipped with bow and arrow, but once the light cavalry had softened up the enemy, the rest of the cavalry did the heavy lifting. Heavy cavalry was first introduced into India by the Syrians, we think, but it was mastered during the Gupta Empire. Those fine new breeds of horses were hung with chainmail or, even according to some sources, iron plates. Now, the riders of the heavy cavalry may well have had bows, but after firing their arrows, they didn't turn and run like a Parthian. Instead, they picked up their long swords and their lances and they charged straight on into enemy ranks. And as Harsh's cavalry thundered towards the enemy, you might have heard beneath their war cry the gentle, tinkling sound, the jewels of their anklets jingling against their stirrups as the riders tucked in their heels and braced for impact. Some historians, by the way, think that the number of cavalry in ancient Indian armies peaked during the Gupta era and that during Harsh's time there would have been fewer. And that might be true, but Harsh's army would still easily have three times as many cavalry as chariots and elephants combined. So this might have been the key, might have been the reason that Indian kings managed to beat the outsiders so often. You can look at it a different way, though. From the Huns' point of view, you can see it as a familiar tale of noble warriors being taken apart by new technology, wielded by unscrupulous and dastardly Indian kings. A bit like the samurai being shot down by machine guns, only instead of samurai it's Huns and instead of machine guns it's stirrups. I don't think we'll be seeing a Tom Cruise movie about the end of the White Huns anytime soon, but if we do get one, I'll certainly watch it. The horsemen were accompanied by fine officers. Bana, Harsh's biographer, describes one in detail. He rode a fine horse. Behind him came two fly whiskers, keeping those darn flies away. In front of him came a bard singing his praises. The horse itself was decorated with golden bells and all the other ornaments we've talked about in previous episodes, including that fine golden cylinder around the tail to keep the tail nice and neat. The officer was marked out in the way that officers during that time were, by a fine umbrella opened over him. It had curved edges like a scallop, strung by gems. Pearls were draped over it, and on the very top was a ruby. The officer wasn't exactly disguising who he was. The king inspected the horses. He made sure they were fed a good morning meal, something to get them lively, strong for the day ahead. And then he moved on. King's chariot rolls through the camp, and all around him are the noises. According to the war manuals, camp should be orderly and reasonably quiet. 
No gambling, no drinking, not before battle even, and no unnecessary noise whatsoever. But the war manuals also talk about great drums being beaten in camp and singing, and Harsha's camp seems to have been a more lively place than that. So we can expect that he heard a good deal of noise as he approached the infantry, the men rustling themselves up into a frenzy. In some way, infantry were the weakness of Harsha's army, at least in the early days of his rule. The classic army during those times, from the Gupta era onwards, had six sorts of soldiers. First off, the most powerful, the most important, the hereditary soldiers. Men whose fathers had been professional soldiers, and their fathers' fathers, and their fathers' fathers' fathers, and so on. During peacetime, they lounged around the palace, around the capital. They were keen for war. And now war had come. But actually, Harsha doesn't seem to have had many such men. Not at the beginning. Harsha would have probably had to rely heavily on mercenaries. Now, mercenaries were the second rung of troops. Many of them would be veterans and good fighters, but they would have to be paid. In fact, the king would have been going and telling them that that morning that they'd be paid more than they'd been promised. Mercenaries needed to be kept loyal. And that's because the enemy was almost certainly spending spies into the camp trying to buy off the mercenaries. That was just expected during that period. In fact, if the enemy didn't try to do this, the mercenaries would laugh at them and think them weak, think them lesser men waiting to be picked off. But so long as the mercenaries need the king's money, and he's paying better, they're going to be good soldiers. The next best troops after that were the armies of the guilds. The guilds were the powerful trading and craftsman unions, and these guilds came from within Harsha's own empire. In that period, in fact, for a while now, guilds had had their own mini-standing armies. They seemed to have started out as caravan guards, but over the centuries, they developed into proper fighting forces. Even more of Harsha's troops, though, seem to have been from his allies. Now, the manuals say that troops from your allies are slightly less reliable than the other troops that we've mentioned so far. Your hereditary soldiers, your guild fighters... They were fighting for their homeland. And your mercenaries, well, they needed the king's money. But allied troops, they didn't have that same urgency. In the heat of the battle, they didn't have that same push to fight. Because they didn't share in the king's defeat. Neither their homes nor their money were at stake. But, the war manuals say, if a king's got enough charisma, he can turn that around. He can make those allied troops close to him. A king was virtually powerless without hereditary soldiers, it said. So Harsha would need to make these men his own, smiling, offering compliments, stirring hearts, drawing them into his fight. And after those four, there are the lesser types of troops. First, soldiers won over from the enemy. It seems that troops of defeated army would be asked to join the men who defeated them and I suspect they were asked none too politely. Now, troops from the enemy were suspect for obvious reasons, and there are clear instructions. Whenever they have weapons near at hand, the king and his loyal men should be watching over them. But the lowest of the low in the army, according to the manuals at least, were the forest soldiers, men who had come from the forest kingdoms. They were, by nature, greedy, unruly, and disloyal. So say the war manuals. 
but the king could actually be expecting to rely on the forest soldiers quite heavily. They were excellent scouts, and they were also often the first line of defence. And more than that, he might have assembled them into a quiet raiding party, sneaking behind enemy lines to gain the advantage when battle came. The guild warriors, the allies, the old enemies, the foresters, the king should watch out for them especially. They might be dispirited after a long march, missing home. Quite likely they'd broken the rules last night and got into a bit of drinking. A lot of drinking, actually, and they might be really quite drunk. They would need a good combination of the tender hand and the firm slap to get them in the right frame of mind. The king certainly had work to do. As you might have guessed, infantry came from all walks of life, and probably from all castes too. We have this idea, or at least some people have this idea, that everyone in an ancient Indian army was a Kshatriya, from the Kshatriya Varna. But some of them were outside the caste system altogether, that would have been true for some of the people from the forest tribes, and others would have come from different Varnas. In particular, we know quite a few Brahmins became soldiers. We know the names of some famous Brahmin generals. And maybe this sort of thing had dampened down a bit since the early Gupta days. I wouldn't expect, though, all the troops of Harsha to have been from the same Varna. Putting background to the side for a moment, what we really care about are the different sorts of infantry, which have different uses on the battlefield. One special unit wore turbans. They had dagger ready at one hand, a short, sharp sword ready at the other. The handles were made of horn wrapped up in black antelope skin. As the king made his way through the camp, that unit might already have left, sneaking out through the darkness before dawn, positioning themselves ready for the battle. They're going to appear later on. Another elite unit were the frontier guards, either men from Harsha's fugitive chiefs at the, the edges of the empire. Also, you'd find frontier guards in the capital itself, guarding the city. These were soldiers who were used to the constant tension of war, and maybe they were also pretty experienced in using their weapons in anger. And many of those soldiers had large circular shields. The shields were covered with a, a strong leather that originated in Southeast Asia and were black. And around the edge, there seems to have been red embroidery. Maybe fly whisks. So it's sort of like a, a large Australian hat, military style. Many of these units would have had spears, but they could also carry bows, slings, and maybe battle axes. There were other units that we only get the occasional mention of. We don't really understand who or what they were. For example, there's a certain class of soldiers which is forbidden to enter towns and cities. Although whether that's because they were too violent or too likely to get drunk, I don't know. Infantry wore a wide range of different kinds of clothing, and the king went around inspecting them from head to toe. Here are some typical soldiers the king's inspecting now. On the top, their scarf was wrapped around their head as a turban. Some of them had ivory earrings in their ears. They wore a close-fitting jacket, often red with black spots. They had golden bangles jangling at their arms. The bangles weren't exactly practical for war, but it was a fashion that had risen in the Gupta era and had really stuck around ever since. Around the soldier's waist was a belt wrapped twice and knotted in the front, with a dagger hanging from a cord resting right on that knot. And there would be swords and clubs tucked in or tied on as needs be. 
Beneath the belt, soldiers often wore trousers, either full length or to the knee, or even quite short, short shorts. Beneath, protective shoes tied to their feet. That was an idea first widely employed during the Gupta Emperor and uh, was still around during Harsha's time. Everything about the costume, except for those bangles, was sleek, designed not to be caught up in the heat of battle, practical. The soldiers even took ribbons and tied up their long hair to make sure it didn't get caught. And the king's going around talking to the soldiers, telling them that they're going to fight well, and if they do, they'll be richly rewarded. In fact, they'll get a reward for every enemy soldier they kill, paid in coin. They'll get two million coins for killing an elephant, five million for killing the general or the heir to the throne. And whoever kills the enemy king will be rewarded with 10 million coins. We don't actually know what the coins were worth, but it sounds impressive, doesn't it? At last, the king was satisfied that the infantry were ready for battle. Stepped back into his chariot and headed away in the direction of rustling chains and trumpets. The king arrived at the elephant stables. And there were the elephants in lines being prepared for battle. Each of them was just outside his stable and tied to a thick post that had been sunk into the ground. They were being dusted off and armed. Around about, as he approached, the king could probably see the remains of yesterday's practice. The troops in camp had practiced every day, and that probably included the elephants too, training against large wooden elephant models. But now the elephant attendants were attaching spikes to the elephants' trunks and securing their armour, chain mail or iron plates with loopholes for archers. Some of the elephants had ichor showing, that sticky black substance that drips down a bull elephant's head when the elephant's in rut. And that's important, because an elephant in rut is especially dangerous in battle. It's fearless, and it seems to ignore some of the damage it takes. It's said that it could take on a whole division on its own. The king is here to make sure that even the other elephants who aren't in rut are spoiling for a fight. Can't talk them into a frenzy, of course, but he did have a special drink distributed to the elephants, a liquor that was designed to intoxicate them and make them just a little bit mad. The elephants, now dressed for battle, were armed even further as soldiers gathered onto their top. Archers, spearmen and javelin throwers. Javelin throwers, by the way, literally the Sanskrit word is men who protect gardens. Because in those times, old chaps would be hired to stand by a garden with a javelin and any deer who came along, they'd throw the javelin at them. Younger Fiercer versions of these same men took their positions up on the back of the elephants. And the Mahuts, the elephant drivers, then commanded the elephants to rise and started to lead them out. They used specially designed elephant goads. They had broad, firm blades and they had this hook attached. These were used to cajole the elephants, to pull at them, to bring them back into line when they got frenzied in the heat of battle. And if the worst came to the absolute worst, they took them and they plunged them into the elephant's skulls, killing the elephant before they trampled any friendly troops. Grim work. Now, Elephants, according to the war manuals of the time, were immensely important in battle. That doesn't seem to have been true outside of India, by the way, not at this time. Elephants had been a huge part of warfare in the Mediterranean, but 
During this period, they'd kind of faded away quite a lot. Or not so in Harsha's India. During that period, elephants were the most vital part of an ancient Indian army. And Harsha had anywhere from 10,000 elephants to 60,000. That's the range of estimates from Harsha's own contemporaries. No doubt that number increased as Harsha's empire grew. He would take elephants from the enemies he conquered, he'd receive elephants as gifts from people he intimidated, and of course, he raised his own elephants from his own breeding herds. Why were those elephants so important in ancient Indian warfare? Well, it's often said that the elephant was like the ancient version of the modern tank. But, to be honest, I don't really understand how tanks work in modern battles. I obviously haven't been listening well enough. So, the cold elephant-tank comparison doesn't really work for me. But it's still pretty clear why elephants were so powerful in ancient Indian warfare. For one thing, they were so flexible. They could swim, leading the charge across a river. That on its own is going to change warfare quite dramatically. They could make paths through a forest for the rest of the army to follow through. I've seen an elephant knock down a tree and it had what seemed to me this look of pure joy as the tree came down. And in battle itself, enemies could take on soldiers or horsemen or other elephants. And they could move pretty quickly too. So if you wanted to outflank an enemy, it didn't really matter who it was, you just get your elephants on the move. With the inspection of the army complete, and the soldiers pouring out of the gates towards the battleground, the king turned his chariot back to the centre of the camp, back to his own tent, and there at the entrance, his own elephant waited for him. For Harsha, it was a female elephant. Back in the era of the Gupta Empire, kings had mostly raced around the battlefield on horseback, I suppose a horse is much more mobile than an elephant, but it's also more vulnerable. And Indian battle tactics had come to focus on killing the enemy king, or at least focus in part on that. But up on top of an elephant, a king can defend himself better. And I suppose he also gets a better view up there too. So let's follow the king as he marches out to the battleground. The king and his enemy both start assembling their troops on the battlefield. In between them, already, lesser troops are there. The forest troops and the troops who are once belonging to the enemy. They're clearing up the battlefield, taking away the thorns. They're also behind the armies, making sure that there are clear avenues of retreat. The king tries to position his army so that the sun's rays will go right into the eyes of the enemy. He starts looking around for the terrain, trying to make sense of it. There's a clump of trees over there, near the enemy. We'll assume that there's a unit in there. And there's that rise on the other side. We'll assume there's some sort of pit with enemies behind there too. And he turns to his own army and decides which battle line, which battle formation to set up in. That's going to depend a lot on the terrain. Whether he chooses the crocodile or the hawk with its focus on the wings, or... If he fears a surprise attack from behind, he might set up in the chariot battle formation, or he might set up in the line that's designed to frighten the enemy. Some sources talk about having a line which is deeply mixed, so you have elephants, cavalry and infantry spaced at regular points apart, all mixed together. The king, let's suppose, chooses the battle formation called the end of knowledge. Elephants in the centre. Next, infantry. That's the anvil, the core of the army. 
Outside of that, well, the chariots would normally be there, but you put your horsemen there. And on the outskirts and the front, horsemen and elephants. Finally, the armies are assembled. Battle begins to the sound of drums. First, the enemy elephants make a move. The king has to work out how to defend against them. Now they say that an elephant in heat could destroy a whole division. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, though. You don't want to defend against the elephants and leave the rest of your army too weak. An elephant will take about 15 infantry and four horse to defend against. As you're dealing with the elephants, other units from the enemy break off, trying to outflank you. And they start to press harder against that immobile infantry in the centre too. The experienced men on your side lean against their shields, making a wall, putting their whole weight against them as the cavalry of the enemy charge in, ducking out of the way of the enemy's spears. Some of your men break and flee. You're going to need to stop them because that's where the serious casualties happen. Find an elephant, get them in the area, and the men can rally around that. Fortunately, the enemy's attack doesn't last quite as long as it might have. They've been up all night, worried about whether you're going to attack. They're too weary to press their advantage. Now, it's your time. Now you're on the attack, one strategy would be to charge all of your forces at once. Infantry, cavalry, elephants. That's a legitimate strategy that's talked about in the war manuals, but let's be a little bit more careful than that. First, take a look at the ground. That patch over there right in front of your horse. Is it soily, the ground there? Are there any trees or any holes? No? Okay, great. Let's send out the horse archers to go and disturb the enemy. Try and get them to break their ranks. Scan the enemy front. See if you can find any gap in their formations. And also, be on the lookout for disorganised detachments run by bad leaders. King takes the advice and he spots something. And he sends in his heavy cavalry. At the same time, the king brings his elephants in and they directs them straight towards the enemy king's bodyguard, waiting to kill him. And then the heavy cavalry, and pretty soon the whole of the king's army seems to be charging towards the enemy. Every eye in the enemy's army is facing towards the king, preparing themselves mentally. But then the king stops, brings the charge to a halt. And just at that moment, the troops he'd sent out the night before, sneaking behind enemy lines, crash into the back of the enemy line, causing disorganisation, chaos. The king calls the charge on again and the whole force launches in. Soon, it's all over. The enemy are fleeing. The rules say that you don't kill them, you let them live. But the rules aren't always consistent and aren't always followed. The king sends in his horsemen to slay as many of the enemy who are flying as he possibly can. The battle's over. The king's won. It's a victory that Harsha won't taste too many times in the future. Just as often as he wins, maybe even more often, he'll be on the other side, his men running for their lives. But that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. During the main part of the episode this week, 
Most of the ideas have come from the Nitisara or from Bana. The Nitisara was that document of politics and warfare which was published, written shortly after Harsha's time. So I thought we'd read from another source. This source is that Chinese monk who's been going around India during Harsha's time, Shangsang. He's a lot less reliable, I think, when it comes to military matters, which is no surprise when it comes to a monk. He's also a lot less interested. So the passage on warfare, we can read in its entirety. It won't take long at all. And it goes like this. The succession of kings is confined to the Kshatriya caste, who by usurpation and bloodshed have from time to time raised themselves to power. Although a distinct caste, they are regarded as honourable. The chief soldiers of the country are selected from the bravest of the people, and as the sons follow the profession of their fathers, they soon acquire a knowledge of the art of war. These dwell in garrison around the palace during peace, but when on an expedition they march in front as an advanced guard. There are four divisions of the army, vis-à-vis the infantry, the cavalry, the chariots and the elephants. The elephants are covered with strong armour, and their tusks are provided with sharp spurs. A leader in the car gives the command, whilst the two attendants on the right and the left drive his chariot, which is drawn by four horses abreast. The general of the soldiers remains in his chariot. He is surrounded by a file of guards who keep close to his chariot wheels. The cavalry spread themselves in front to resist an attack, and in case of defeat they carry orders hither and thither. The infantry, by their quick movements, contribute to the defence. These men are chosen for their courage and strength. They carry a long spear and a great shield. Sometimes they hold a sword or a sabre and advance to the front with impetuosity. All their weapons of war are sharp and pointed. Some of them are these. Spears, shields, bows, arrows, swords, sabres, battle axes, lances, halberds, long javelins and various kinds of slings. All these they have used for ages. can really tell the contrast between the practical advice of the Nitisara and the really quite bizarre comments of Zhang Zhang. All of their instruments are sharp. Oh, right. Okay. Thank you. I guess it's not really his field. That's it for this episode. And that's it for our focus on ancient Indian warfare for now. Next week, we're picking up the story of Harsha again. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Sneha Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. There's a link in the description. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Take care.